0: Amen. Well, right this very moment, we are in the middle of what has been traditionally referred to throughout church history as the Sunday morning worship service. Ever since Christ's church began on the day of Pentecost, his followers have gathered together on the first day of the week to praise and thank God for loving them and rescuing them from his wrath against sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And this New Testament gathering or assembly that we are experiencing this morning of, as God's rescued people, the, the ecclesia as it's referred to in the Greek, was patterned after the worship gatherings of God's people in the Old Testament. If you remember... Back in Exodus, after God rescued Israel from slavery to Egypt, he brought his people together at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they camped there at the, at, the, at the foot of the mountain while Moses climbed up to the top of the mountain to meet with God and to receive the commandments that were to live, or that they were to live by as his redeemed people. And this was intended by God to be an unforgettable experience for his people as they spent time in his holy presence. And if you just were to read Exodus 19 and 20, it is truly a frightening experience. There was fire, there was smoke, there was thunder, there was lightning, there was actually the voice of God thundering from the mountain. I find it interesting that when Stephen described this sacred gathering at Mount Sinai right before he was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, he referred to this gathering as the ecclesia, the same word that we use today or the New Testament uses for the word for church. And so the Israelites were were churching together, if you will, which meant more than just hanging out over a cup of coffee and catching up on the week's news, uh, singing a few songs, feeling a few goosebumps, watching a funny skit or a video, or getting a few helpful tips for your life from the Bible. That's nothing of what the experience was like for the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. And coming to church, whether you realize it or not, is meant to be somewhat of a reenactment of that moment at Mount Sinai, as well as every other moment after that when God's people would worship Him in the tabernacle and the temple. You know that included in that law, the law of God that He gave His people on Mount Sinai, were the blueprints for the tabernacle, which was a mobile tent pitched at the center of Israel's camp where God dwelled, and the people went to worship him while they wandered in the wilderness those 40 years. And once the Israelites entered and settled in the promised land, the tabernacle was replaced by the temple, which again served as God's dwelling place and a permanent place of worship for the people of Israel. And so we see just by the... um, Illustration or example of the tabernacle and the temple that worship was to play a central role in the life of God's people, that, that worshiping God was their top priority. Well, the New Testament indicates that when God's people gather together today, as we are, that he is in their midst. And whenever we come to church, we should be able to say with Jacob, back in Genesis chapter 28 that surely the Lord is in this place. Take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis 28 just for a moment and I want to read a familiar portion of God's word to you as we begin today and as we continue in our series why we come to church. Genesis 28 records the account of when Jacob uh, deceived his brother Esau and received the birthright from his father and his mother and father knew that Esau was not going to take that lightly, and so they encouraged Isaac—or Jacob to, to flee and to leave in order to really preserve his own life. And so he left uh, his home, and it says in chapter 28, verse 10, he departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And here we have recorded that classic story of Jacob's ladder. You're probably familiar with this. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants." Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And so what a timely message from God to Jacob who was to carry on the mantle of Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. And God was just uh, reassuring him that while he was having to leave the promised land, that God would be with him and one day bring him back and give him all of this land uh, to him and his family and that through him, through the nation of Israel, the nations and families of the earth would be blessed. But notice how Jacob responds, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, quote, surely... The Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. What a profound statement. I'll never forget sitting at the Shepherd's Conference at Grace Community Church back in 2004 and listening to R.C. Sproul expound on this profound text and apply it to the state of the modern-day church. And no one can compare to R.C. Sproul. Uh, He's just R.C. Sproul. They broke the mold, right, when they made him as they say. And so rather than quote him this morning, I want you to hear what he said from his own lips. And so just listen for a few minutes to this little clip of a sermon that, again, had a dramatic impact on my life some 12 years or so ago. Let's go ahead and play that.
1: Now, Ladies and gentlemen, the most tragic human experience there can be is to be in the presence of God and not know it. Almost thirty years ago, I met a young gentleman from Chicago who had just started a church, and he had done surveys of suburban Chicagoans, along with some of his friends, and in the survey he met a couple of thousand people who at one point had been church members and then left their participation in the church. And he asked them, Why did you quit going to church? and people gave all kinds of answers to the question but they tabulated the results and saw what was the number one answer the number one reason people gave for leaving the church and the number one reason they gave was the church was boring and the number two reason people gave for leaving the church was that it was irrelevant And so young Bill Hybels decided to try a new way to reach the baby boomers by changing church and disguising it from what churches normally seem to be like and decided that his worship service and his church would be a place where nobody would ever be bored and where people would find relevance and <coughs> so without much time passing, he had the fastest growing church in the United States and America and became the primary model for church plants thereafter. But in our discussions, when he was just beginning this, I said to him, Bill, do you know if you read the texts of scripture, particularly the Old Testament, We find hundreds and hundreds of encounters recorded in sacred writ where human beings encounter the living God. And there's not a monolithic response to meeting God. All kinds of different emotions are displayed. Some people are struck dumb, like Job saying, I will place my hand upon my mouth and speak no more. Others are giddy with joy and leap and dance with excitement. Others are completely morally devastated like Isaiah, who places a curse upon himself because he had a dirty mouth. Others are stunned in awe, in reverence i said so we find a wide diversity of human responses to the presence of god i said but bill nowhere in the sacred text do i ever read of a story where a human being encounters the living god and is bored terrified yes hostile yes Bored. It's utterly impossible. And no one ever met the living God and walked away saying, Well, that was an irrelevant experience in my life. (laughs) I said, So if people are being bored in church and finding the church is irrelevant. The only conclusion I can come to is that they have no sense of the presence of God. And if we really want to engage the people of this generation in the life of the church, we have to do everything in our power, in the power of the Word of God, in the form of worship that we use to make manifest the invisible invisible glory of the eternal God. So that when people walk out of church on Sunday morning, they will say, wow, surely God was in this place. How awesome is this place. But that's not the experience of the church in our time.
0: So the question is, why is that not the experience of church in our time? Why don't we as Christians leave church on Sunday overwhelmed with the sense that we have just been in the awesome presence of the Almighty God? I would suggest that it's because the church has become so obsessed with being exciting and being relevant that it's forgotten why it exists Someone said it this way, a high proportion of people who go to church have forgotten forgotten what it is all for. Week by week, they attend services in a special building and go through their particular time honored routine, but give little thought to the purpose of what they're doing. The Bible talks about the bride of Christ, but the church today seems more like a ragged Cinderella. The church needs to reaffirm the non-negotiable essential elements that God designed for it to be committed to. I know of no single verse of scripture that explains the essential elements of of a church more simply more succinctly than 1 Timothy 3:15. And I want you to jump ahead now to the New Testament and look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. This is the theme of this letter, and not just of this letter, but of all three of the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. But listen to what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delighted, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This verse was addressed to Timothy who was overseeing uh, the local church that Paul had planted in the city of Ephesus and the church was having some troubles and Paul had left Timothy Timothy there to set things in order and so Paul's plan was to come back and visit at some point Um, but he wasn't sure if or when he would make it back there and so he sent Timothy this letter with some important instructions that in his mind just couldn't wait. And this letter, uh, along with His second letter to Timothy and his letter to Titus, again, what we refer to as the pastoral epistles, are really the best instruction manual for the church that has ever been written. You could title them really God's guidelines or guidelines for God's household. That's really what the pastoral epistles are all about. And they explain the basic principles and and practices that God's people should follow when they gather together. It's really how we should behave in church. That's what he says. I'm I'm writing that you would know how one ought to conduct himself. How you should behave, your lifestyle. And again, Paul wasn't just telling Timothy how he should behave as a a pastor, but how the whole church in Ephesus was supposed to behave. This is how uh, the local assembly of believers is to act. And notice he refers to that assembly as the household of God, the house, the building, the dwelling of God. It's very familiar to what, um, with what uh, Jacob said in, in Genesis chapter 28, verse 17. Uh, the, behold, this is the house of God. And Paul borrows that same language and calls the church the household of God. Now, again, when we think of God's house, the term God's house, Um, We probably, if you were raised in church like myself, you get this picture of of an old deacon yelling at some little kid running down the hallway and saying, hey, young man, stop running in God's house, as if this was God's house. What we need to understand is that when the Bible talks about God's house, again, it's not referring to a building, but to all the believers in whom God dwells. We are the body of Christ. And, and, and we are the sanctuary of God. And in the Old Testament, as we already mentioned, God dwelt in the tabernacle and in the temple. But in the New Testament, God dwells in the church. He dwells in us, not within the four walls of this building. He dwells among us as his people. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says this, Paul said this, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, a sanctuary of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And he was referring to the church in Corinth there. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 6, again, For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So Paul refers to the church as the household of God, or the house of God. Same language again as Genesis chapter 28. Surely the Lord is in this place. But then notice how he goes on to describe and explain the true nature of the church here. He uses two descriptive phrases. He says, uh, "How do you, how you should I'm writing so that you know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth." All that the church is to be and do is summarized I think in those two phrases. These two phrases, the church of the living God and the pillar and support of the truth really define the true primary, two primary functions of the church. We have a sacred duty as a church to do two things, to honor God and to hold up his word. To honor God and hold up his word. That's why we talk a lot about having a high view of God and a high view of his word. Why? That's the purpose of the church. That's the purpose of our lives as Christians. Well, this morning, I just want to focus in on that first phrase, that first sacred duty, where it says that the church or the household of God is the church of the living God. That word church, of course, is the word "ecclesia," the called out ones, as we've been learning about, the the, the term that's used over a hundred times throughout the New Testament to refer to the group of believers who have been called out by God from this world as his own, to worship and witness for him. He says, uh, the, the household of God, which is the church, the church, the gathering, the assembly of the living God. The first thing we can draw from that is that the church belongs to God. Not me, not the elders, not you. It belongs to God. The Father Designed the church, the Son purchased the church, the Spirit sealed it and empowers it, and therefore we belong to Him. And that gives God every right to tell us how we should behave in His church. It's His church. And first and foremost, He wants us to behave reverently towards Him. And I think that's what's implied in that expression. The living God, which is the church of the living God. That phrase, the living God, is used throughout Scripture to describe God as a holy and awesome God who deserves to be worshipped with reverence and awe. In fact, that's exactly how the Israelites described God or referred to God when they talked about their experience at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 26 Uh, the Israelites were remembering how they stood trembling at the foot of Mount Sinai after they received the Ten Commandments. And this is what they said, For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? We're surprised we're still alive because we heard the voice of the living God And from that point on, Israel's consciousness that God lived or dwelled among them profoundly affected their community life, even down to the littlest things like where they went to the bathroom. I don't mean to be vile, but in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 12, there was actually instructions that God gave them about where to use the restroom. (laughs) And basically, he said, go outside the camp take a little spade with you and do your duty out there because, and this is what he said, specifically so that I do not see anything indecent in the camp. In other words, I'm right there in that camp, and so when you have to go do your duty, you go outside the camp. I mean, living, having the living God living among you uh, was a big deal. Listen to some other uh, verses that, where this term, the living God, is used in the context of worship. Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 84, verse 1, How lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, But the Lord is the true God, He is the living God, and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says very simply, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of who? The living God. Turn over to Hebrews for a moment. We've been spending some time in Hebrews the last few weeks, particularly Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 10, and talking about the importance of, of, of coming together to encourage one another so that our hearts will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But as we move on in the book of Hebrews... Uh, we come to a fascinating description of church. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, the writer of Hebrews is contrasting Mount Sinai, the experience that the Israelites had on Mount Sinai, with the experience that we as Christians have at Mount Zion. And again, wanting to compare the two and contrast the two to encourage those Jews who had professed faith in Christ who were thinking about ditching Christianity and going back to Judaism so they wouldn't be persecuted for their faith in Christ. He's encouraging them why being in Christ is way better than than Judaism and what they knew from Judaism. Listen to how he describes this. Verse 18, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken for them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touched the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling, So here's a description of what we see in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 when the Israelites were camped out at the foot of Mount Sinai. But, verse 22, "...you have come to Mount Zion, a totally different kind of mountain, and to the city of the..." who? "...living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and..." what? "...church." of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And so the writer of Hebrews was comparing church, what what should happen at church and what happened at Mount Sinai. But not only what happened at Mount Sinai and what happens, what should happen at church, but also what is happening and will happen in heaven. You see this connection here? The the writer here, the author of Hebrews, is beautifully and powerfully portraying what the gathering of forgiven sinners worshiping together around the throne of God here on earth should look like but you can't help but wonder, is this also a reference to what? To heaven and what's happening in heaven. And I think the point of this passage is that our experience here at church every week was intended by God to serve as a foretaste of heaven where we will worship together face to face for all eternity. That, that church should be in the same way that, that Jacob said, is this not the gateway to heaven? Genesis 28, verse 17. This is not the gateway to heaven. I mean, we got angels coming down, up and down the ladder, and I'm looking, it's like the doorway where I can I can get a I, I can peer into heaven. And that's what church should be like. This should be, in many ways, the gateway to heaven. It's the, it's the doorway. It's the, we get a chance to get a sneak preview of what heaven is going to be like. And so not only should we look at what worship was like in the Old Testament to know what worship should be like in the church, we should also look at what worship is like in heaven and bring heaven down into the church. Now sadly, this is not the experience that you get when you walk into a lot of churches today. They don't resemble what's going on in heaven now or what what we're going to be doing in heaven when we get there. You walk into some churches and it's like walking into a morgue. They're cold, they're dark, and people are just going through formal rituals with little or no emotion. They're stuck in the stuffy old-fashioned traditions of past generations and they're content to keep doing what they've always done, even though it's truly irrelevant to most people's lives. And I think that's why so many people are turned off by traditional denominational type churches. There's so many church plants popping up that have become so popular. Um, so you walk into some churches and it's like a morgue. You walk into other churches and it's like walking into a mall. You're not sure. Did I, did I walk into the mall or is this a church? I'm not sure, right? I mean, they're, they're warm, they're bright. People are hanging out, sipping lattes and cappuccinos and there's a food court and there's a workout facility and bowling alleys and fountains and waterfalls and kids play areas that like are way better than ones at Chick-fil-A and you're just like whoa what's going on here and the well the main goal is to project a comfortable non-threatening welcoming atmosphere where people can come as they are there's no Pews. There's no pulpits. There's no old-fashioned hymns. There's no long sermons. There's lots of music, lots of videos, lots of drama, short, positive pep talks. It's all about being user-friendly. And I think that's why so many people are attracted to contemporary, seeker-sensitive type churches, the kind that that R.C. Sproul was, was mentioning earlier. And what makes them so popular? Well, they're giving people exactly what they want, a relaxed, non-confrontive, entertaining experience that makes them feel good about themselves when they leave. Well, the truth of the matter is, church isn't a place to be entertained, but a place where God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And you may remember from our, our recent study of the Gospel of John, probably one of the most, if not the most important passages on worship in the New Testament, John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus said to the woman at the well as she was inquiring, Hey, what's the deal? Um, is it okay for me to be worshiping as a Samaritan on Mount Gerizim here? Or, or is it better to be in Jerusalem and worship uh, you know, with the rest of the Jews? Um, And Jesus responded, an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. By the way, let's not confuse who the real seeker is. I mean, I hope we are a seeker-sensitive service, a seeker-sensitive church, but we understand that God's the one who's seeking to be worshiped. We're targeting God. We're not targeting people. Uh, We're we're not man-centered. We're God-centered. God is the the true seeker here. But notice he says, verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And again, the the Samaritans and the Jews in Jesus' day were uh, really just two examples of of, of the wrong way to worship God. And this is what Jesus was, was pointing out here, the Jews, on the one hand, had reduced worship to an elaborate system of outward rituals and ceremonies. It was all the bells, it was all the smells, as, as they say. And what was happening at Jerusalem was lifeless orthodoxy. It was, it was light without heat. It was truth with no spirit. The Samaritans, on the other hand, had developed their own religion because they got ousted by their brothers, uh, their fellow Jews, for being compromisers, and so they developed their own religious system without any biblical authority. And what was happening at Mount Gerizim, which was their Jerusalem or Mount Zion, was what you could refer to as zealous heresy. It was heat without light. It was spirit with no truth. And so Jesus was rebuking the the worship practices of both the Jews and the Samaritans here. And the former was worshiping God without any real passion or emotion, while the latter was worshiping God with passion and emotion, but without any basis in the scriptures. And according to Jesus, they were both wrong. They were both false forms of worship, which were unacceptable to God. In other words, they were offering something to God that he didn't want, that he didn't desire. And there are a couple incidents in the Scripture, one in the Old Testament one in the New Testament, that teach us that God takes worship very seriously. And so should we. We, we don't have time to look at them uh, specifically, but I think you, you're familiar with them enough for me just to mention them. In Leviticus chapter 10, we have the account of Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu, these were Aaron's sons who thought it would be um, interesting or fun to offer what was referred to in the scriptures as strange fire before the Lord. And somehow they did not follow the prescribed order that God had laid out for the Levites, and they went in there and decided to do their own thing. And what happened to Nadab and Abihu? They were consumed by fire. God killed them, struck them dead in the act of worship. In the New Testament in Acts chapter 5 we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You're probably more familiar with that story where uh, everyone was gathering together their goods and, and contributing them to the early church to take care of one another and apparently Ananias and Sapphira had a had a portion of property that they sold and they said we've given all the proceeds to the church to be used uh, to, to to minister to the body of Christ. And yet they what? They lied. They had held some back for themselves which wasn't necessarily the sinful part. It was the lying about it. And what happened? God struck them dead on a Sunday morning worship service. (laughs) Can you imagine that? People come to church and all of a sudden God's striking people dead because they're not honoring the Lord. And I think both of these acts of judgment, when you think about it, they took place at the launch of a new era of worship for God's people. The Nadab and Abihu incident uh, uh, happened at the the inauguration of the tabernacle. The beginning of a new worship mode, if you will. And the Ananias and Sapphira incident happened at the establishment of the church. And I think both of these incidences show us how passionate God is about being approached in fear and in reverence. All that to say, when we come to church... We need to realize that we're coming into the presence of a holy God. And frankly, that can be a very threatening thing. I still can't get over how a church can put on their sign the options for you to choose from on Sunday morning. I understand the contemporary service and then the traditional service. I get that. But there's also a third category and it just simply says casual worship. So if you want to come to the casual service, you can come. Now, granted, we understand it's talking more about dress, right, and how you come. It's the early morning service. Just come as you are and you come and sneak in and sneak out, whatever. But the whole concept is like casual worship. That's, a, that's an oxymoron. That's like jumbo shrimp, Right? I mean it doesn't make sense. that Those two were casual and worship in the same phrase. And the point is that the early church was wasn't very user friendly. It wasn't very seeker sensitive. People were actually saying it said fear came about all came over all the people, and, and people were saying, I'm not going to that place. I might die. Now, let's keep this in perspective, okay? I don't want you to misunderstand what the Word of God is saying or what I'm saying this morning. Listen, when an unbeliever walks into our church in particular, they should feel warmly welcomed and loved by all of us. Would you agree? But they should also feel uncomfortable. In other words, they they shouldn't feel at home if you will, if they're not a believer, they they shouldn't feel at home. They should feel somewhat out of place. They should feel convicted and think to themselves, man, you know, I've never been around anything like this. I've never experienced anything like this before. See, the problem with the secret sensitive movement is people walk into churches, they don't feel convicted. Because it's like, I feel like I'm at the mall. I feel like I'm at Starbucks. I feel like where I am all week. I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, as he was ascribing to the church in Corinth what their worship service should look like, as they were sharing a hymn and sharing a word and, 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 and encouraging one another, he said, an unbeliever is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. That's how God has designed the church to reach unbelievers. And so the best way to reach uh, the lost in our community is to be a group of people who don't just come mindlessly and emotionlessly going through a bunch of traditions and, and meaningless rituals, nor should we be a group that's pragmatically trying to attract lost people with just being cool, with the cool factor. And marketing techniques and entertaining people with with whatever we can come up with to entertain them. We need to be a group of people who come together to reverently worship and honor the living God so people have the overwhelming sense that they are in the presence of God. The question is, how do we do this? How do we worship God with fear, and with reverence. So far, in this little series we're doing on why we come to church, we've we focused mostly on the horizontal dimension of encouraging one another. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as that manner of some or the habit of some is, but all the more encouraging one another or encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we've been focusing a lot, at least the last couple of weeks, on the horizontal dimension of, of church, but, but there's also the vertical dimension of church, which is the encountering God. And above all else, we come to church to worship God. That must always be our main priority when we gather together. The focus should not only be on each other, right? Uh, It should be on God. And again, there's this interplay, back and forth. We're focused on God, we're focused on one another, but we want to make sure that we highlight uh, this aspect of the vertical dimension. So what I'd like to do is hopefully be very practical with you, okay, what what does this look like, this vertical dimension of worshiping God, making, you know, the corporate worship of our church all that God desires it to be, all that God would demand it to be, okay? So I think there are at least just six essential activities that are involved in corporate worship that honors and pleases God. In other words, there's, there's five things that, that God's people must do whenever we gather together in, in order to worship God the way He demands and the way He desires and the way He deserves. And in order to worship God in a manner that pleases Him, we need to engage our lips, we need to engage our hearts, we need to engage our hands, we need to engage our gifts, we need to engage our minds, we need to engage our ears. And I've just listed those. If you have the sermon outline in front of you, we've just got six activities. What does what, what a, a true worship look like? Well, it involves singing. It involves praying. It involves observing the, the ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. It involves serving. It involves giving. And it involves listening. Now, we don't have time to get into these this morning, but let me just take a moment before I close to, to make sure that we understand what worship is, because we're just talking about worship here this morning is really what we're talking about. And, and I think the first thing we need to understand is that you and I are wired for worship. Do you realize that? That you instinctively worship. You are a worshiper by nature, Nobody has to teach you how to worship. You do it all the time. The last time you went to that, you, you went to that new restaurant, maybe, and you had that dish that you have been getting and you're just like, this is amazing. And, and you leave and you t- start telling people about this restaurant and this, have you ever been to this place? And it is amazing, you gotta try this. What are you doing? You're worshiping, you're, 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 you're talking about how great that whatever is. Um, or you go see this movie that you think is so great, and, or you hear this new song that's so great, and you start telling other people how great it is. Now, there's probably more worship going on in front of the bluebell section at Walmart than in most churches. Why? Because we stand there and say, hey, have you tried this? Have you, and we talk about, hey, have you tried the new, but- I mean, I've been worshiping the new Butter Crunch. Flavor. I'm just telling you, okay? What, what, I've been telling other people. Have you tried the buttercrust? It's like a butterfinger exploded in vanilla ice cream. What am I doing? I'm just, I'm just worshiping. I'm, 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 I'm making something. I'm making much of something. I'm telling other people how great it is, and that they need to try it. That, that's essentially what worship is, and so we do it by nature. And 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 the English word worship comes from an old English word worthship. In other words, worship is assigning to God his true worth, his true value. It's it's giving God the glory that it's due him, that it's expressing to him and to everyone around us how worthy he is of being adored and honored and praised and magnified and exalted. It's making much of him. It's making much of who he is and, and what he's done for us. Listen, God didn't send his son to make much of us but to make so that we can make much of Him for all eternity. And God wants to be made much of. He wants to be glorified and praised and honored and adored by those He's created and those who He's saved. He wants us to fall on our faces before Him and lift up our voices to Him and express to Him how wonderful, how amazing, how marvelous He is. He wants us to sing His praises for all that He is and all that He does. And He wants us to tell Him that He's awesome. Kind of doesn't sound so right, does it? The way I worded that. Because to our human ears, this this sounds arrogant, sounds self-serving, but we need to keep in mind that we're talking about who? Talking about God here. Now that's sinful for us to want to be worshipped and praised and for people to adore us and tell us how awesome we are. But God can't sin. And again, this is just one more reason why He is the only one who is truly worthy to be worshipped and has the right to desire and even demand worship from us. And He does that throughout His Word. He calls us to worship Him from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between we see the call to worship or examples to worship. And probably the section of scripture where the doctrine of worship is most obvious is in the book of Psalms, which was essentially Israel's hymn book. And that's why I typically read from Psalms on Sunday, Sunday mornings, it just, it's a natural part of worship. For example, Psalm 95, verse 6, come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Psalm 96, verse 7, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name, bring an offering and come into His courts, worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before Him all the earth. And so our worship of God is based on what we see around us in His creation. It's what we see in His Word, what we've experienced uh, in His salvation, His redemption, and it can be expressed in in all sorts of ways—in singing, and in praying, and in serving, and in giving—but uh, ultimately in living a life to the glory of God. And I think it's important for us to to get beyond the false impression that worship is something that we do for an hour on Sunday mornings. Worship is not a a, a once a week event. It's a way of life. God created us to worship Him not just one day a week, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And I think the main reason why worship tends to be lame at times in our church or in other churches is because it's the only time that any of us are actually worshiping all week. is, is this within this worship service. And so we may be moving our, our lips and singing songs and praying prayers and listening to sermons, but our hearts are far from the Lord. And we deserve the same rebuke that Jesus gave the Pharisees in Matthew 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. They worship me in what? Vain. Someone said this, those who participate most joyfully and profitably in the worship service are those who have the most frequent and vibrant personal times with God during the week. Their worship on Sunday is an overflow of the exciting relationship they've had with God during the week. Is that your experience this morning? or on a typical Sunday, that that you're just coming together. You've been worshiping God all week. and And this is like the highlight of the week because you just get to come together and worship together with other like-minded believers and join your voices and join your heart and mind together to worship God. Now having said that, I think there are some Misconceptions when it comes to worship at church. We're talking about church, uh, worship is something we do all the time. It's a 24 it's 7, a 365 kind of thing, right? But what about this worship service or, or worship at church? What is the, the music minister often called in churches? He's the worship pastor. What does that imply? That worship is contained within the singing, of the, the responsibilities of the music ministry. In other words, that, that, that worship is singing, period. What about praying? What about preaching? What about listening? We're, we're worshiping right now. As we're listening to God's word, we're worshiping. And so that's why we chose not to call Chris the worship pastor, Right? Because in many ways, I'm also a worship pastor, am I not? I'm just worshiping in a different way, and I'm leading you in worship in a different way than Chris does when he gets up to lead you in music. We're both focused on the Word of God. He's just getting you to sing the Word of God. I'm getting you to listen and learn the the Word of God. And we know that, as we've already mentioned, that the worship service in some churches is a theatrical performance with the goal of entertaining those in attendance. And I think the most foundational concept regarding a worship service is thats is that you're not the audience. <laughs> Who's the audience? God. And I say that because I think it's easy for us to forget that we find ourselves seated in the audience section. If You go to a movie, you go to a play, you go to a... Whatever, a Broadway show, right? You're, that's, you're the audience. And I'm up on stage. The musicians, right, are up on stage. Um, that's where you perform. That's where the performers are up on stage. That's just the culture in which we, we live, and we bring that culture into church. And, and I think that's why it's common for those who attend church to critique the Sunday morning worship service. As if, hey, we paid good money for this, and that's all we got? That wasn't so good. Reminds me of the little boy that was having lunch with his family, and his dad was talking about how boring the sermon was and how bad the special music was, and the little boy had happened to see what his dad had put in the offering plate that morning. He said, hey, Dad, what do you expect for five bucks? The point is we have to always keep in mind that we are the ones on stage performing, so to speak, for the pleasure of the king who is seated on his throne in heaven watching us and listening to us and most importantly looking into our hearts. That's a huge mind change. The mental shift that we all have to have. We are the worshipers. God is the one being worshipped. And I think the key to great worship is is great worshipers, not necessarily great musicians or even great songs, but people who love God with all their heart and have a passion to worship Him. Now, we're thankful for gifted musicians and gifted vocalists and the technology that we have, we've been blessed with, right? It just... It enhances the atmosphere, it eliminates some of the distractions and and hindrances, but, but that's not what makes a truly great worship experience. It's people that are coming to church who are going hard after God all week. And when they get to church, they do the same thing there. They're going hard after God and and, and it doesn't matter if they're singing a hymn or they're singing a praise chorus, whether they're being accompanied by an organ or a banjo, it doesn't matter. They're just going hard after God. Whether the sermon is really good or not so good, they're just going hard after God. That's what makes for a great worship experience. And I'll just close this morning with The words of John Piper in his book, God's Passion for His Glory. I love what he says here. He says, when we come to worship on Sunday morning, we ought to come hungry for God. We've been talking about how we should come thinking ahead, how we might be an encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We need to come planning ahead, thinking. But we also need to come hungry for God. He says, God is mightily honored when people know that they will die of hunger and thirst unless they have God. Nothing makes God more supreme and more central in worship than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or toys or friends, nothing is going to bring satisfaction to their sinful, guilty, aching hearts besides God. God. He said, this conviction breeds a people who go hard after God on Sunday morning. They're not confused about why they're in the worship service. They do not view songs and prayers and sermons as mere traditions or mere duties. They see them as means of getting to God or God getting to them for more of his fullness. He says, no matter how painful that may be for sinners in the short run, He concludes, nothing keeps God at the center of worship like the biblical conviction that the essence of worship is deep, heartfelt satisfaction in him. And the conviction that the trembling pursuit of that satisfaction is why we're together. That's why we're here. We're here in the trembling pursuit of being satisfied In God and God alone. John Piper became famous because of his statement God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. In other words, God is most worshiped and honored and praised when we are most satisfied in Him, when we find our satisfaction in Him. And that's what this worship service is all about, is finding our satisfaction in God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time in Your Word. There's just so much to try to take in this morning. I realize that, just um, this, this concept of worship, this subject matter is so dense, it's so broad. Lord, I pray that you, your Spirit, would just take uh, some of the truth that's been um, feebly communicated today, and just uh, cause it to sink down into our hearts and our minds. That we would that there would no there would be no one here coming to coming to church here that doesn't know why they're here. That they would know we would all know exactly why we're here, and that is to to worship you in spirit and in truth, in reverence and awe. And that, Lord, we would, even in the ebb and flow of our spiritual lives, be able to say on any given Sunday that surely you were in this place. And that we wouldn't miss that. Lord, because we desire to, to know you more, to love you more, and to make even more of you than we already have, trying, have been trying to do. Lord, and so I pray that we would learn how to make much of you, not just personally and privately, but corporately when we come together as your church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.